Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the long-term, we'll discuss long-term care insurance generally and the Class Act specifically. With me to discuss the topics is Ms. Connie Garner. Welcome, Connie. David, how are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you. As always, let's begin with some background. Approximately 70% of Americans turning age 65 today will suffer a functional disability, meaning they will need help with accomplishing basic daily living activities. They'll need this help for, on average, three years. Medicare, however, only provides limited post-acute care. Medicaid covers some long-term care costs, moreover medically necessary services, but only for those with very limited financial means. Only 7.7 million Americans have a private long-term care insurance policy. To put that number in perspective, there are 50 million Medicare beneficiaries. For these reasons, the Affordable Care Act included the CLASS Act, the acronym for the Community Living Assistance Services and Supports Act. The CLASS Act would have provided a public long-term care insurance policy for employees, that is, enrollees would have paid a monthly premium through payroll deduction. Employees would have been eligible for benefits after paying premiums for five years, and the benefit, while not specified in the legislation, was anticipated to provide a daily cash payment of approximately $50 to $75 per day, depending on one's level of disability. The CLASS Act was never implemented after the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2010 and was actually repealed by the Congress earlier this year. Ms. Gardner's bio is posted on the website, so I'll not provide it here. So with that, let's begin. Before I ask you, Connie, about the CLASS Act, Mm -hmm. let's discuss the need for long-term care insurance. And just by way of an example, uh, according to a recent HHS study, approximately 20-plus percent of Medicare beneficiaries will need over $100,000 to afford their expected long-term care costs. And also to note, half of Medicare beneficiaries uh, have incomes below $22,000 per year. And before we started this uh, interview formally, we did talk about long-term care insurance, both for the elderly and for disabled uh, younger adults. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's just take those two populations and look at them individually and then together for the purpose of your question. Um, if you look at the over 65 population, I mean, this is an issue that's been identified now for almost 25 years. And, you know, with different kinds of legislative attempts at it, and no one's really been able to solve it. And in retrospectively looking back at the process that we went through with class, a lot of it has to do with an industry um, that really has tried very hard, I think, to be able to put a product out there that people would buy and invest in. But it required a couple of things, I think, that were missing. The first thing was it required people in this country to understand that they were going to get a functional disability one way or the other if they if they stayed alive. The only way not to get that situation is if you die. But as a result of either an untoward circumstance, you fall off the ladder taking the Christmas lights down, or just the aging process as a whole. For me, it's been fascinating to watch the country's inability to, to kind of get their arms around the fact that they are not invincible, that there does need to be a safety net there, that we need to care about people, and particularly if we're going to front load the system like we do with lots of interventions to keep people alive. Well, then they have to have some quality of life through that living process and also that dying process. So for me, it's an interesting piece to watch because as a, as a practicing nurse practitioner, I see the reality of it every day. 
And with the long-term care issue and Medicare and the baby boomers, which we should have seen coming a long time ago, and now the concern about health care costs, you only have two programs that are the only game in town. One is Medicare, which, as you know, gives you the acute illness and injury and a very small rehab benefit. If you have a broken hip or you have a hip knee replacement, or, you know, then it's very heavily managed. And if you don't show continued progress towards resolution, then that benefit is sort of gone. So it leaves individuals in no other situation than getting poor enough or spending down their resources enough to become Medicaid eligible. Hence, you have the trouble with the dual eligibles. Hence, you have the trouble with uncoordinated care. And so I can tell you, even when I work in the hospital, there are three kinds of people that come to the emergency room. One are the people who belong there because they have an acute accident or illness that can't be dealt with any other way. The second are the folks that we turn around and send them to, you know, a physician in the, in the community. And the third, which is the overwhelming number, are those individuals, irrespective of age, that had they had the right services and supports for their issues of chronicity, wouldn't be there in the first place. And so that is why this particular, and it's not just about care and treatment, it's also about a financing strategy for it. So if, if, if the agenda of the country is to be met in terms of doing the right thing for its citizens, having efficient health care and saving money, and, and having access to quality, then we need to have a system that respects this. And I think what's most frustrating in terms of the aging population is if you look at so many different countries in Europe, and we looked at every single model in Europe, they don't have an issue with accepting the fact that this is something that from a societal point of view is worth the investment. They don't have it. England has a brand new program that's just phenomenal. France has one. Germany has one. But we, for some reason, can't seem to understand that it's about all of us. It's not about the guy across the street that fell off the ladder or the guy across the street that developed Alzheimer's. And so that's part of why I think this is such an important issue. The other, the other piece for the under 65 population is you have what, 57 going on 60 million people in this country who have functional limitations as a result of a disability. You have young people coming up and now they say it's one in, 40, one in 60 versus one in 40, depending on who you're listening to, young people living on the autism spectrum. Okay, those individuals, just as an example, can work. They can do good things with their life. They don't have to be commissioned to sitting home watching television waiting for their Social Security check to come and their Medicaid stuff. But they need services and supports to be able to get there. Okay? They, they need a ride to work. They need somebody to help them get dressed in the morning. So, I mean, there are non-medical kinds of functions that people need that will keep them from having to go into the public system and keep them going forward with some life of productivity and, and, and you know, not having to be dependent on federal programs if they have just a little bit of something. And they need an option to buy it. Right? There is no option out there now. Okay? There's, we, we have no good usage data on people with disabilities. We go by the diagnosis. Okay. Um, I can tell you from my own personal experience, I have seven kids, four boys and three girls, and all four of my boys play baseball. And they have had every possible kind of surgical injury. They have had knees and ankles, and we just had one with a shoulder this week, right? Do it, does the insurers want them in the risk pool? You bet, because they're the baseball player. We have another daughter who had a uh, viral encephalitis when she was six weeks old. She has a static condition. She has, she has developmental disability. That's it. It's not leading to cardiovascular problems. It's not leading to anything else. Try to get her insured. She's got an automatic issue with the wrist pull because of the diagnosis. Does she ever go to the doctors? No. 
you know. So there, there, we don't even have medical usage data correct about people with disabilities to be able to actually risk adjust them appropriately. So that's another whole problem. But if you have 40, one in 40 kids, one in 60 kids living on the autism spectrum, that's an awful lot of people leaving school to go to the rest of their life that we have don't have the supports in place for, for them to go on an upward trajectory rather than a downward trajectory. So if you think about both of those populations, I think you could try to address it one of two ways. The long, first of all, the long-term care insurance policies have traditionally been traditional policies built on traditional actuarial ways of thinking about things. And I learned a whole lot about actuarial work, the pros and cons of it, through the Class Act. Um, and, and, and the marketing strategies until recently have been traditionally geared towards the elderly. So if I am a young person working in uh, the government, for example, and I have a cafeteria plan of benefits to pick from, and I've got to look at those different benefits, and one of them is the glossy flyer with the grandma with the blue hair sitting in the yard, uh, it's not registering with me enough to buy it. It mm -hmm. doesn't tell the story fully, and it doesn't register with me. If there was something that had that on one side, for example, and on the other side, somebody falling off of a ski lift, then I might think, hmm, so we haven't done, point being, we haven't done a good job in this country of, of getting the citizens in this country to understand, the people in this country to understand that they don't know who they're going to be 24 hours from now. And it doesn't matter whether it's an, an older person or a younger person. Nobody knows who they're going to be 24 hours from now. But we haven't invested, we've not yet invested in a system that, that has a safety net for that. And this isn't about being risk averse. This is about being smart. And we haven't been able to put that in place in this country. So those are the reasons why I think we need it. Some of it's about cost. Some of it's about quality. Some of it's about the right thing to do for people. And we just haven't seemed to get there yet with an inordinate amount of resistance. Now I think we're coming on a time where it may matter. And we may be able, the stars may be lined up enough that we are able to get something. Because a traditional insurance company who I think is not to blame for this. You know, they have their business model, they're entitled to it, they're entitled to make a pro they're entitled to do all that. Okay, but but I think I think now the time is coming where their risk pools have to be very, very, very clean. The number of people that are uptaking the insurance is not what people would want it to be. The premiums are too you know, too high. Um, and now now may be a time to look at modeling things differently. And I'll leave you with my one basic question is I don't understand why we in this country cannot buy an insurance plan that has two parts to it. So my, my whatever the health insurance is that I have, you know, from the federal government, Blue Cross, whatever it is, why I can't buy a plan that has the acute illness and injury section to it, just like we have right now, and then at the point at which I, I acquire a certain amount of functional limitation, and it could be as conservative as three, you know, problems in three areas, cognitively or physically, then the back end of my plan kicks in. And that at least gives me a safety net. And then I could certainly buy one of the products from the insurance folks, three-year product, around it. Don't know why we can't. We do it with car insurance. We do it with life insurance. We do it with house insurance. We don't do it here. And I don't understand it because if you did the right thing on the back end with longer-term services and supports, it would save you money on the front end of people that have a recidivism back through the door of the acute illness and injury uh, uh, window of the healthcare system. So those are kind of all the reasons why I think this is important and that we look at it. Thank you. We do have data, though, on personal bankruptcy, but we won't. Oh yeah, no, that's we won't. We won't go that's there. True. Let me ask you then about the uh, class act. I briefly summarized it.
Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe suffice to ask you, what happened? It was part of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, the secretary in October of 2011, uh, Secretary Sebelius announced, and I, t- I do not see a viable path forward for class act implementation at this time. Um, explain to us what happened. Well, I, I think I think it'll be hard to ever really know what happened. Um, I'm always saying I'm going to write my book about this because it was an interesting experience to walk through. But um, again, I, you know, I, I think in the very beginning of the inception of the Class Act, uh, it was an interesting discussion with Senator Kennedy about why he felt like this was important to put into a health care bill. And I think it brings up the issue of what was the ACA about? Was it about health care reform or was it about insurance reform? Because the two are very different. And you know that the mainstay of the ACA is about insuring the uninsured and setting up exchanges. And the other pieces, you know, I don't want to say are peripheral to it, but they are not the core of it. And so, um, you know, this is kind of an odd thing, some would argue, to add on to it. But it all came as a result of a more global conversation with him, thinking about what really mattered to people in terms of health care over the long haul. And again, I think both of us came to the agreement that it couldn't be just acute illness and injury. You had to, you had to have something in there that provided services that maintained someone's function and prevent them from slipping backwards at the point that they needed that, or the front didn't really count. And so it was really an effort to do that. You know, we argued, why not make it a mandate? We're making everything a mandate. But that would have made it a little bit hard to carry particularly because we had some industry people who were very threatened by class and felt like it was you know, going to compete with them. And I think what's important for people to understand is the Class Act was never about competing with long-term care insurance. Frankly, it was about jump-starting their flat market because we figured if we could take the edge off, then it would allow people to buy up around it and there wouldn't have to be nine different products out there. And so it was never meant to compete. It was never going to offer enough daily benefit particularly for people who needed really, really significant health care, not the ride to work, but significant health care, was never going to be able to pay for that. But it might at least give people an edge, you know, to take the edge off if they choose to invest in it um, along the way. So, you know, we put class in. We felt like it was important. It got caught up in a lot of, I think there were a couple things. One were the politics. The politics were huge. It was an easy, low-hanging fruit one might consider to get a hold of and say, you know, look, it's going to be a Ponzi scheme. That and was Senator the, Conrad's comment. Well, you know, and afterwards he said he really didn't mean it like that and everything else. But, I mean, it really is kind of interesting because you could argue, if you argue that, you could actually argue that Social Security is a Ponzi mm-hmm. scheme, that Medicare is a everything that comes off of my paycheck stuff is a Ponzi scheme, right? The reason that that five-year waiting period was in there was, was really to test the water. Because CBO told us they did all kinds of runs on this. You only, the public only had to see two. But they did all kinds of actuarial runs on this. And at the end of the day, they said, look, you know, this is a crapshoot. No one's ever done anything like this before. There is no model for it. The only model we have is an existing model that's in trouble. So you just got to take the risk and do it and see what happens. You know, in Israel, they've done it voluntarily, um, and they've, they've got a lot of uptake, you know. Is there something different here? Probably the mentality of that it's important to me. But um, that was kind of where we were at. So we tried to do it the best we could. We tried to make that bill, that part of the bill, free for the administration to be able to twist and turn it like a Rubik's Cube till they came up with what was the right piece model 
um, based on the milieu of the day. Having worked in the administration, it is very hard at times to work in the executive branch in the administration um, when the Congress passes a bill that's written so tight that you've got nowhere to go with it. Okay, and having been on the receiving end of that, so we're not going to do that. So we gave parameters. This was not a program. The program had never even been developed. We said, you can't charge less than this. You have to provide this. You, here are your benchmark cornerstones. And you model it enough so that you can get there. So I think what was hard was, number one, you had the politics and the hook of this Ponzi scheme thing, which I will tell you that if you looked at the bill, the whole health care reform bill, and you looked at what the money was at that five years of savings provided to the bill, the bill was still very solvent without it. It was not included in the paying for it, if you really looked at it. Um, and so that, that's, you know, that's kind of one part. It was the politics of everything. It was the industry who was very threatened by it at a time when they were having their own issues. And, um, and then I think it was the, um, then it was the issue of cash. Can we really give people cash and think they're going to do the right thing? Well, we certainly do it in, uh, old age survivor social security, mm -hmm. you know, but, but that always became an issue and it wasn't taxpayer dollars. You know, it was not intended to be taxpayer dollars. And we knew that we could do it without causing it to be taxpayer dollars. But, you know, all those raised concerns, and that was fair and square with, you know, those who don't want to increase the government's responsibility in something, and that was fair. So those were kind of part of the problem that went wrong with it. Um, and then I think the other part of it was it really, truly does require, if you look at class, creativity. It requires people to think outside the box. It requires them to think about different ways to model and do things. And I think at the time that this was asked of the administration, the manpower shortage with the rest of the ACA just didn't allow that to be happening. And um, I feel bad about that because it, do, it, does re it was meant to give them the ability to be creative, and it actually couldn't happen because I don't think they had the manpower to be able to do it. Um, there was an actuary who they brought in from Genworth, which is a long-term care insurance group, who did come to the end of the day and say, we can do this, we'll show you the way to do it. Now, some of the ways he wanted to do it, I didn't agree with, and I'm sure the administration wouldn't, but it made a point, and this is a point that I always said, if he had an idea, that means there's a million other people out there that have ideas, and it's a matter of twisting that Rubik's Cube until that idea gets right. So those are the kind of things that I think, I think it was mostly politics that went on. Um, actuarial stuff was hard. But we had no frame of reference other than a failing industry. And so there really wasn't, you know, a whole lot you could do. So that's kind of what went on with class. Um, and the people. The, the thing that I think, and I, I want to add this, that, that is, it was, was the most concerning was the number of groups that we had that supported this. This was the real people in real neighborhoods that were willing to put the money up to try this. And they got shut down. Okay, we had almost 275 major organizations that included every religious group, every consumer group, every provider group, I think and every union, and you know, people who normally don't traditionally get along on some of these issues that were behind it. They established this nonprofit called Advanced Class, which continues today to go forward. Um, but that, I think, was the hardest thing. You know, they couldn't compete with the three-piece suits from the industry. They couldn't. But they certainly made a good effort at it. They came up to Capitol Hill every day and they fought the fight, just like the more, more um, seasoned people do that go up there. And um, I think that was the saddest part, was that real people wanted this. And some of, the, some of the issues that were raised didn't turn out to be the case. 
you know, young people won't buy it, young people won't care. Well, if you go over and talk to the young people group that's over at one of the universities here called the Young Invincibles, every one of those kids had ACL tears as soccer players. They know full well they don't know who they're going to be tomorrow. And those are the folks who got the 26-year-old provision pushed through, right? They cared about this issue. You know, any, any university, and as I said, I have four boys, they play baseball. College athletic departments cared about this issue because they knew that they knew what it meant. So it's a lot of this of, of young people won't be invested in this it has to do with how much it was, would cost, which is why you saw the, the young people piece in there. And also how we, how we talk about it, how we talk about it. You go to, if you go with an issue like this, particularly the young people one from 20 to 30, you know, go to a parent PTA meeting and bring up this issue with families that are 40 like, to 55 years old that have kids and ask them one question. What are you going to do when your 22-year-old, right, your 22-year-old goes to beach week and jumps off the deck of the house into a pool with a foot of water? That's a phone call to home at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it doesn't matter whether you like them or they like you. That is a phone call at home. To families who have difficulty with their 401Ks now, that don't have it. I mean, at the, you can hear a pin drop in a room when you have that conversation to the point where families afterwards would come up and say, well, can we pay the premium for them? Can we? So there is a market there that, that not only hasn't been touched, but it hasn't been talked to in terms of what matters to them. And so those are some of the things that I think we were trying to do in class, but we didn't quite get there. Um, and I do understand, you know, all the politics and everything that went on with it, and that's fine. But it doesn't matter because the issue goes on and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger every day for the 65 and older population, for those who are frail elderly from 85 on up, you know, that is a huge population. And then certainly for the younger people now who have more functional limitations than we've seen in the past. So in the three or four minutes we have left, mm -hmm. since you did mention advanced class, uh, the question simply then is where do we go from here? You're sounding, I'm hearing, a little bit optimistic. Oh, I don't think the issue's dead, and I honestly don't think the model's particularly dead. I mean, I, I think it's been interesting throughout all of the, you know, debate that went, went on up in Congress to repeal, to not repeal, whatever. I, we've yet to see anybody put something on the table. You know, there's been no one that's put on, no one who's even talked about or put on another kind of an option. And there are a variety of different things you could do. You know, of course, you know, retrospectively, after nine years, I've thought about everything that we did wrong and, and places to go in the future with it. And so I think, I don't think that the issue's dead. I think it's a time to regroup the industry. I think that, I think now is a good time to work with the industry to develop some products. Um, and I think there are two conversations. One has to do with Medicaid and Medicare and, and what do you do? Do you add another provision onto Medicare that becomes, you know, another title that deals with this in Medicare? And then how do you pay for it? Do you do something different with Medicaid other than continue to manage care? so tightly that, you know, it's tough to get what you need. And I think that's an entitlement conversation that will continue to happen, and there are ways to do things in that. Our concern from advanced class has never been about that. I mean, it's a concern, but that's not our focus. Our focus is what is it that we can put out there that people can rally around and invest in so that they don't have to be on public entitlement programs. What do we do about that so they don't have to spend down, so they don't have to get poor and significant to get what they need? So I think that time is now, and I think we will be able to design different kinds of approaches to things. Um, so no, I don't think it's dead, and I don't particularly think that the model itself that class was promoting is, is dead. It needed change. I mean, there's no question. 
You know, I don't know of any bill, and I was up in Congress for a long time, and I don't know of any bill that you introduce and comes out looking almost the same way it was when it looked in, and in this case, that's what happened. So it needed to be, again, put through that, that Rubik's Cube type mm -hmm. of event, and we just never got to that point. So hopefully the next round will, you know, take a lot of these things and think about them differently. And with that, I have to say we're at our time boundary. So, Connie, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks.